Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we have special guest panelist Karen Woody, professor of law at Washington and Lee, who talks about SPACs. Matt Kelly takes a look at the Tandy Leather SEC enforcement action. Jay Rosen on monitorships at small physicians' offices and pharmacies. Jonathan Armstrong on Jumbawamba. And I give some thoughts on HP and autonomy. Jonathan Armstrong, it appears that you have invented a new term, service, or something uh, around ransomware. What have you invented, and how has it evolved in the past 10 days? Well, thanks very much, Tom. I have invented something. I was fortunate enough to speak at a real-life, in-person, human beings conference uh, a, a week or so ago, the CISO 360 conference uh, for chief information security officers. And I gave a, a short presentation of, of what I'm now calling the Chumbawamba test. And you might <laughs> think, what on earth is that? And uh, if you've missed it, uh, Chumbawamba were uh, a sort of anarchist group, a little bit like the Sex Pistols. I'm not sure whether they made it across the Atlantic. But they had one mainstream hit, uh, which I won't sing for you. You'll be relieved to know. But it basically, the, the tagline is, uh, everybody gets knocked down, but then they get up again. And I've noticed that in ransomware, I have a working assumption that that's become the test for uh, regulators when looking at ransomware. And we've been handling a pretty horrible ransomware attack from uh, the Reval gang, which uh, have been in the press quite a lot. And I think a lot of these attacks are almost indefensible, i.e. you've got an extremely well-resourced gang who are making lots and lots of money because people keep paying the ransoms. They're hiring the very best talent. Some say they have access to nation-state resources. And effectively, some ransomware has almost become the Cold War by proxy, i.e. some nations who seek to undermine the UK and the US, and that might be China, it might be North Korea, it might be Russia, are rather than attacking government per se, they're attacking essential providers of services, manufacturers, retailers, healthcare organizations, and waging war by proxy. And this case was interesting to me in that Obviously, we reported it to the regulator, and of course, most ransomware attacks are reportable under GDPR, whether or not data is exfiltrated. And obviously, we got asked tough questions by the regulators, but I think they applied, and they didn't call it this, the Chumbawamba test, and they realized that everybody is vulnerable to these sort of uh, attacks. So rather than measure whether we should be, if you like, 
penalized or the client should be penalized for being knocked down, they've moved the test to how well you stand back up again, how well you get back up again. And I just wonder if we're not seeing this in all sorts of other regulatory and compliance environments as well. You know, if we look at some DPAs in bribery, for example, I think some regulators are, of course, looking at the original act of bribery, but they're also looking at the recovery that corporations make as well. Do you learn lessons quickly? Do you implement new compliance programs? Do you do new training programs? How well do you get back up again? So um, I think that's not to be defeatist. If you look at ransomware, for example, I don't think we should necessarily hold our hands up and say, oh, we're going to be attacked and there's nothing we can do about it, so we shouldn't have any defenses. Of course, we should. But we should also prepare for the inevitable. Statistically, it seems at the moment, every organization is more likely than not to be attacked by ransomware in the next year or so. So we've got to prepare for that inevitability. Yes, by increasing our uh, our, uh, defenses, but also by making sure we can get back up again, get back up again quickly and hopefully better. So that's my odd off the wall chumba wumba test for you, Tom. First of all, I have to reference anarchy in the UK and God Save the Queen, uh, both from the Sex Pistols, having bought the album when it came out. uh, And it certainly did uh, disrupt uh, quite a bit. But, Jonathan, here in the United States, we have had commentary from the Biden administration that they're going to hold corporations' uh, feet to the fire uh, in this area and really uh, require corporations to amp up their game uh, to either defeat or protect themselves from ransomware attacks. That's number one. But number two, uh, as everyone knows, you're a fine, upstanding citizen of England and the United Kingdom, and uh, privateers are uh, noteworthy as honored citizens of uh, the United Kingdom, albeit 400 years ago. And so is this really just an extension of uh, Drake and Raleigh and the privateers on the high seas being employed by um, a government uh, with plausible deniability that uh, Queen Elizabeth I had no idea that privateers were attacking Spanish uh, shipping? It's almost like you're at that conference, and that's the very debate we went into. And I think we all agreed it actually was pretty much the same. You know, Elizabeth did turn a blind eye to piracy on the high seas, and that was used as a way of you know, undermining Spanish interests, for example. So again, another war by proxy, if you like. Did she fund them? Probably not. Did she condone them? Uh, I'm pretty sure she did. And I think you're exactly right that we're seeing uh, that happen again. And there are other similarities as well with bands of brigands, if you like, forming and disassociating themselves and reforming. If you look at Reville, for example, there was an organization called Evil Corp that was uh, uh, the, the individuals became sanctioned by the uh, US regime. They then probably become this new gang, uh, Reville, capital R, capital E, so Re-Evil. Uh, Reville have apparently disbanded and no doubt will uh, appear again as uh, 
you know, Revel 2.0 or some uh, similar name. So you're absolutely right. There are analogies with the Elizabethan way of waging war, if you like, and this sort of state-sanctioned actors where governments don't want to be seen to be officially at war, so they can use these sort of guerrilla piracy tactics instead. Matt, do you have a comment for Jonathan? Do. First, uh, I had to look this up, but for anybody who is curious, that Chumbawamba song, which apparently is called Tub Thumping, although I always knew it as I Get Knocked Down, 1998, 23 years ago, in case anybody on the call (laughs) listening would like to feel old. Uh, But Jonathan, I just wanted to zero in on this idea of if you have a ransomware attack, how quickly you can get back up again. Um, Number one, for financial firms, broker dealers uh, in particular, the regulator there, FINRA, they have made crystal clear that they expect this as part of your supervision and compliance program capabilities is uh, uninterrupted or minimally disrupted provision of services to customers. And typically, we would have thought of that like a hurricane knocked down your data center, so your backup center has to be seamlessly kicking in. But it's ransomware just as well. And FINRA has been on companies for looking at your business continuity. And very specifically, they define business continuity as your ability to keep providing services, uh, regardless of how inconvenient that might be to you, the firm, as you have data backups and processes for seamless failovers and things like that. But yeah, this is a compliance obligation in some sectors. Um and then, you know, I, I kind of think about some of the other sectors, like let's say you're a hospital and you suffer a ransomware yeah. attack and they lock down life-saving equipment and enormous disruption. Like, I suppose in theory, you could get business interruption insurance to cover the losses for that. But like, you know, if you're if you have patients who have died as a result of systems that are inoperable, um, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of who cares that your business interruption insurance then covers your financial losses. The publicity alone is going to be a nightmare. I mean, this is this this is a primary overriding concern, whether you call it cybersecurity or business continuity or compliance or whatever else, is really about how do you keep providing services to your customers regardless of any disruption you in particular might be facing. And that's really the way people are going to have to think about what's the goal so we can uh, develop a response plan for ransomware attack and be lucky that you're not regulated where regulators are saying that's the goal. Now go do it. Because in some business sectors, that is what has to happen. Yeah, I think you're right. And as I say, I'm not suggesting that we sort of abandon the defences. I think healthcare is really interesting. If anyone's interested, I I can send them the case study. But as you may know, there's been a horrific uh, attack on the health services in Ireland. They, I think, are two months in. They were given the, the encryption key. They've still only got, I think, about 80, 75, 80% of their servers back online. And that's despite having, I think, 800 military personnel go into hospitals as IT support plus external contractors. So so there are uh, sectors like healthcare being targeted. And to Tom's point regarding the Biden administration, there are similar moves in Europe as well. We already have something called the NIST directive, which uh, mandates critical infrastructure to take steps to try and 
uh, prevent attacks and report them when they happen. We've got a new directive called NIST 2, which is currently going through the parliament and apparently the Slovakian, Slovenian pre uh, presidency currently has that as a <laughs> priority. So we might see a new draft of that by the end of the year. So I think Europe and the US, their thinking is aligned. But the bottom line is that if one of these gangs is attacking you, they might be able to do 800 attacks on your system. You've got to get lucky 800 times. They've got to get lucky once. Well, on that note, uh, I'm going to ask Jay Rosen, what is on your mind? Thanks, Tom. <clears throat> I'd like to talk about how a monitor shift can be a powerful tool in either small healthcare offices or pharmacies. And, um, you know, Tom, when, when we put the show list together and you asked me to talk about this, <clears throat> besides getting all choked up, uh, I wanted to say that this is something that my colleagues at Affiliated Monitors do on a daily basis. And in the past, you and I have spoken frequently about what a monitor does. And specifically, we've explained the paradigm that we use at AMI to help our clients get back in the good graces of their regulators. Healthcare organizations have an obligation to follow professional standards and failure to meet these obligations can lead to consequences, including the serious remedy of suspension or the ultimate penalty of revocation of your license. One way that healthcare providers or pharmacies can avoid such negative outcomes is to bring in an independent third-party monitor to help mitigate these issues and to put the client back on a path that will allow them to satisfy the regulator's issues. An independent third-party monitor will help the company assess its ethics and compliance program, make suggestions to help mitigate any current issues, and provide a going forward program to allow the provider to remain in business during its remediation. An independent integrity monitor can be engaged in a proactive manner, or the monitor may be engaged due to ongoing issues with regulators. Often we are brought in to assess a program before they may face an enforcement action. Either way, the process is the same. The monitor will confirm that the healthcare entity has a current compliance program, the monitor will look at policies, procedures, and training, and they will hold interviews with key personnel and focus groups. After synthesizing all this information, the monitor will determine how effective the client's compliance program is and whether the culture exists to identify future compliance risks. An independent assessment and culture review provides a, set, a fresh set of eyes. This uh, assessment can show whether a program is truly effective, it can reveal gaps and weaknesses in the current program, and it will make recommendations to help the entity demonstrate to regulators that they're on the right path. By bringing in an independent third party, you send a strong message to your workforce and the practice pharmacy that the practice or pharmacy takes compliance seriously. Quite often, complaints are brought to medical, dental, or chiropractic boards that healthcare professionals are not meeting the licensure board standards. When a board finds out, it usually has one or two choices. It brings on the hammer or does nothing at all. Suspending a provider can be too harsh a tool and not remediative. Monitoring gives the provider an opportunity to stay in practice. Monitoring also allows individualized tailored feedback for each healthcare practice or pharmacy. In some areas, there are very few Medicaid providers 
for the community. And thus, the penalty of losing the one's license is not only detrimental to the healthcare provider, but it also exacts a high toll on the community. By engaging an independent integrity monitor, you can help ensure that the practice is on a path to meeting its professional standards. It allows the practitioner to remain in business. It protects the public interest, and it makes sure that the state has confidence that the practice is doing what they said they would do. Practices think that they can try harder or they can do a better job of documenting compliance. Unfortunately, these are just wishes, but not an action plan to move forward. A good monitoring program points out deficiencies and also helps a practice put into place systemic fixes that will be sustainable over time. Well, Jay, I, I actually, uh, I think I want to follow up on your last point because uh, keeping healthcare professionals in place seems to be the overriding goal. Yes, uh, mistakes may be made uh, at people uh, there, and there are going to be some people who, who need to leave the healthcare profession. But in large part, uh, my observation has been it's compliance professionals uh, who made mistakes. And so I really wanted to ask you to perhaps expand a little bit and talk about why this can be such a powerful tool to keep the delivery of healthcare services uh, running as flowing as smoothly as it can be. So uh, one of the chief uh, areas that we've seen this come into play, and you've discussed this with my colleague, uh, Jesse Kaplan, is uh, during the whole opioid epidemic here. And there are situations where if you take the healthcare provider out of the equation, that there's not an opportunity for uh, people uh, to get the services that they need. Sometimes the nearest uh, physician is two to 300 miles away. And this probably even got exacerbated more during the pandemic when people weren't able to go in and see their uh, practitioners. So from that point, you really need to provide a solution that, yes, uh, the, the physician may have made some mistakes, but by pulling them out of circulation, you do more harm to the people who are currently prescribers and uh, you put them in a situation where they either have to go to the black or the gray market to continue to get their medication. But on the other hand, if you did bring a monitor who could come in and actually go over uh, specific plans for treatment. So what would happen is if an, somebody like AMI got engaged, they would meet with the professional and say, we're going to look at 15 charts every month. We're going to look at how you've prescribed, what medication you've prescribed, and what other alternative uh, programs you've looked at besides, you know, going to treat uh, with opioids off the bat. Maybe there's physical therapy, maybe there's chiropractic, but maybe there are some other choices that you can follow to move forward and help your uh, patients stay treated and from going into the black or gray market. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. So uh, I'm going to sit in today and I'm going to talk about the ongoing saga since 2009 ongoing of <clears throat> Hewlett Packard and their acquisition of autonomy. And the reason I bring it up now is this past week, uh, Mike Lynch, the former CEO and founder of Autonomy, was deemed by a court in 
uh, the United Kingdom to be extra, uh, extraditable to the United States to stand criminal trial in San Francisco over alleged inflating of autonomy's value, which led to HP overpaying for autonomy. So a little context here. HP bought autonomy for $11 billion in 2011. The deal almost immediately uh, was clear it was a disaster. I think uh, it was recognized it had the potential to be a disaster at the, the time. And indeed, many commentators, or at least some commentators, thought that HP paid a premium of up to 70% over the value of autonomy. Why did they do so? How could HP be, HP be so stupid as to do so? Did they do any due diligence? Uh, all fair questions, except that uh, HP did do due diligence on this. And HP was in a unique situation at the time. They had brought in a new CEO, uh, Leo Apicather. I'm sure I butchered that name as I butcher all names. And he was early in his tenure, and he saw the wedding of autonomy to HP as a way of uh, the great merger term, creating synergy. And it would uh, allow HP to grow and go in a direction that perhaps uh, it was not in at that time. And um, HP had several large projects going on at the time, one of which was so large that the board of directors actually uh, split their time looking at the autonomy deal and this other project. And when a CEO is dead set to do a merger, guess what happens? A merger happens. Well, this merger did happen. There were numerous red flags. There were numerous red flags in the financial due diligence. There were numerous red flags internally raised by HP. Indeed, the CFO uh, said it would be a disaster for HP. Uh, but who listens to the CFO when the CEO wants to do something? Well, of course, the merger occurred. The incredibly high valuation was paid. Everyone scratched their head and couldn't figure out why. And uh, now you have to actually integrate two companies. So what happens? Uh, CEO Apicker, sorry for that butchering again, is uh, leaves to pursue other opportunities from HP within 30 days. So you have the champion of the deal no longer there. So is this deal an orphan? Is it a bastard stepchild? Is it something else? Well, pretty quickly, it, uh, things just go south in terms of the integration a new uh, CEO comes in, Meg Whitman. Well, Meg Whitman takes a look at this and realizes this is not in the interest of HP and uh, really doesn't see a way for this to go forward. <clears throat> Move forward some, uh, I think it's four years later, HP writes off $8 billion from their deal. Um, and HP begins to make noise that, you know, we were defrauded by autonomy. Uh, irregardless of the fact that we did food, full due diligence, irregardless of the fact that our CFO uh, thought it would be a disastrous deal, and indeed others, irregardless of the fact that our CEO wanted to do the deal, and regardless of the fact that internally our deal-making structure at the board level to look at this was not in full uh, function at that time. So HP uh, gets into a very heated war of words with the former autonomy uh, executive leadership team, including Mike Lynch. And HP brings a civil suit. And the civil suit 
uh, was brought and uh, began in uh, 2019. Now, parallel to this, the United States Department of Justice was probing the sale, and they focused on uh, autonomy overinflating the value of uh, its products and services. And so while HP brings civil suit to recover monies from the autonomy uh, executive leadership team, including Mike Lynch, um, that trial starts in March 2019. Well, we're recording this in July 2021, and guess what? That trial's still going on. But the United States Department of Justice decides that they're going to bring criminal charges against Lynch and apply to the UK government to extradite him. And that extradition was successful, at least at the trial level. I'm sure it will be appealed. But we've seen the uh, Department of Justice extradite others from the United Kingdom uh, on financial crimes, uh, most notably the three from the uh, Enron case and the Nigerian barge deal uh, from Nat West, who funded the deal. So now Mr. Lynch is looking at a criminal trial in the United States in San Francisco whose corporate headquarters are in San Francisco, Hewlett Packard. Is that a coincidence? I will leave you to debate on that. So what happens when the civil trial is over in the United Kingdom? It's scheduled to be uh, over uh, within the next uh, several weeks, and indeed a judgment is expected in nine weeks. Well, what happens if on the civil side of things in the United Kingdom, Hewlett Packard is not successful? Uh, and Mr. Lynch is extradited to the United States and faces criminal charges, which are are at a higher level of proof. And then he's criminally convicted in HP's hometown of San Francisco. Uh, What's that going to look like for um, justice? So uh, lots of questions. Uh, This deal stunk from the beginning. It still stinks, and a lot of ills smells still going from it. Mr. Armstrong, do you have uh, something you could pitch in with for us? Uh, Yeah, I do. Um, In about 97, 98, because as you know, I'm incredibly old, I got uh, invited to dinner with uh, uh, Dr. Lynch. Um, And it was a very strange event. There were quite a lot of people in the room. And it was because I don't get out much, it was the closest I've ever seen to a share price ramp uh, ever. This is, I think, just pre-float. And, uh, you know, these sort of talks that were, I'm not allowed to say this because we're just about to float, but... And then fast forward some months, I had a call from somebody I was sitting next to at dinner who said, did you think the pitch at dinner was pretty persuasive? And I said, look, I had my doubts. Uh, And he said, oh, so you're not going to be any help to me. And I said, what what help do you need? And he said, well, uh, I put in a lot of our savings and we've lost them. And I thought you were going to say it was really persuasive because I wanted you to then ring my wife and say, you'd you'd uh, invested as well so so i've always felt somewhat invested in this story and i can't pin my finger on what was what you know why the alarm bells rang then but um it's not with the benefit of hindsight they did uh 
of course, I'm not making any assumptions as to guilt or innocence. I share your concerns that uh, that we oughtn't to shift due diligence in a transaction from the uh, buyer to the seller and from civil to criminal courts. Uh, 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 of course, absent fraud, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I'd also just remark in passing that Dr. Lynch has been a director and I believe is still a major shareholder in Dark Trace, which uh, is the uh, golden child of the stock exchange in some respects at the moment, a tool used ironically to prevent uh, ransomware. And Dark Trace debuted in April 2021 and is up 32% since its uh, stock exchange debut. So so make of that what you will. So Matt Kelly, I'm going to uh, actually uh, uh, introduce your topic because today you're into leather. So why are you into leather and what does that have to do with everything compliance? Well, Tom, it has a lot. Although first, I just want to say about HP and autonomy. I was trying to follow your entire history, but I ran out of string and thumbtacks to pin to my conspiracy bulletin board. Um, and I just I look forward to this case getting resolved sometime in the 22nd century. Uh, but my case that I wanted to talk about today is an SEC enforcement action that on the surface looks kind of uh, ho-hum. It was against a Texas leather goods retailer called the Tandy Leather Factory. I have to admit I am not familiar with Tandy because they operate uh, about 100 stores across North America, but I think none in the Northeast. I had not heard of it. But uh, the SEC earlier this week sanctioned Tandy and its former CEO, a woman named Shannon Green, for poor oversight of the company's inventory accounting system, which ultimately led to uh, sloppy financial record keeping and a restatement of two years worth of financial results in 2017 and 2018. Uh, And uh, look, the enforcement is not a big, huge thing. These were civil penalties. I think it was $200,000 against Tandy and $25,000 against Ms. Green. But what was really interesting to me was the nature of the failures here, that we had a poor control environment leading to poor control activities, which then led to a financial reporting restatement mess. And I liked this case because we all know that the control environment is important, and we all say it's important, and we know a bad control environment is very bad, but we don't often see cases that are really good examples of how the control environment fails. And when it does, what then are the consequences for the nuts and bolts of the actual compliance things that happened. So even though this is an accounting failures case, I don't even think there was deliberate fraud, but there was certainly incompetence leading to a restatement. Even though this is about accounting, the same principles of bad control environment leading to bad control activities leading to mess, well, that's something any compliance professional can appreciate, whether you're an anti-corruption or cybersecurity or any other niche of corporate compliance. So I wanted to take a look at that. Uh, what happened was that Shannon Green had been Tandy's CFO from 2000 to 2016, then promoted to CEO from 2016 until she was sent packing at the end of 2018 when everything was starting to come to light. But 
she therefore played a critical role in developing Tandy's control environment. And so she did duties such as writing the enterprise risk assessment and writing the control narratives about what the financial processes were. And I just wanted to read out what she had said for the enterprise risk assessment. Uh, she said this, the structure of operations and the overall industry lends itself to a certain degree of predictability in the, in the company's financial performance. Management's experience, length of time in the industry in particular, creates an ability to pinpoint unusual transactions and trends and fluctuations. And what goes on from there. But what struck me and what should be the red flag for anyone is that this senior executive writing the risk assessment basically says the control environment is great because we have great senior people who are really knowledgeable about this. And the, my trouble there is that it was relying on specific people, namely Green, who was writing her own risk assessment, really saying that she was the control. So right away, I'm thinking that's kind of a conflicted, convoluted argument to make. But the, the control environment is rely, relying on specific people rather than on structure and process and roles, which could be filled by anybody. Because even if Green were a sub, superb financial officer, which momentarily I'm going to tell you why she was not, even if she were a great financial officer and her experience was the guiding principle for low risk, she could be hit by a bus or abducted by aliens, or she could disappear for any number of reasons. And then where does the company go? So right away, be thinking about, is my control environment predicated on actual specific individuals or just on a really strong role that is structured in a strong way, such as we have low risk because our controller designs internal control for financial processes and they're subject to approval by the CFO or if you don't have a controller, because you're a small company, and, and Tandy was, um, the CFO reviews the risk assessment with the audit committee quarterly to sign off down its approval and structure or something like that. But it can't really be pegged to specific persons. But what happened then is Tandy did that. Uh, so what's going to happen here is that because they're a retailer, the inventory is always going to be a material thing for them. And that's where the system was failing. They had an inventory tracking system that, you know, if you're in retail, you know these terms already, but they had, uh, it would generate a stock keeping unit, the SKU, and that would track data such as the cost and the price. And whenever the company purchased fresh inventory, Tandy personnel would update the pricing amounts of those SKUs, except the flaw in this system is that their inventory management system, IT application, whatever it was, it could only hold one cost per SKU at a time. Long story short, every time they entered in new inventory cost data, it erased all the historical data from prior inventory costs. And if you are a financial reporting person or you're from the retail, you're probably wincing right now because you know if that is the problem, if you can't record your historical inventory costs, your inventory valuation is wrong. And if that's wrong, well, then your net income is wrong. Your gross profit is wrong. And you're going to have a big problem, which is what happened with Tandy. And uh, so they wound up in 2020, I think in 2020, finally restating uh, their financial performance for 2017, 2018, and part of 2019, where they had basically overvalued inventory, which led them to, in one year, they had to write down net income, and another year, they had to inflate it up and back and forth. But 
It's a financial restatement. It's a big problem, all because they had this flawed inventory accounting process. That's a control failure. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. You've got an automated inventory system that's hinky. That's not ideal. But couldn't you have a manual process to fix this? You could accept, uh, and, and that is what Tandy tried to do. Tandy tried to have its personnel go in and then manually re-enter the correct historical inventory cost data because their automated inventory system wouldn't do it. Uh, but as the SEC said in its complaint against Tandy and Green, uh, quote again, Green and others did not take steps to properly assure implementation of this manual process. Uh, and they did not have adequately trained accounting personnel doing these control activities. They weren't even trained in accounting at all, so they made lots of errors. Um, but then again, what would you expect when you have a control environment that is guided by just one person, Green? Uh, this is why you can't have individuals who are saying, well, I'm going to be the control and I'll make sure everything gets done correctly, because they might not. And Green was not a good CFO because she didn't really uh, settle in and apply the proper diligence to make sure that all the data was recorded correctly. Um, they had a flawed control environment that relied way too much on one person who subsequently made bad decisions about employee hiring, and they subsequently made bad decisions about what are we going to put in the data. Uh, Green also was the one who was in charge. She was the CEO, remember, since, uh, CFO, rather, since 2000 for many years. She knew this was an inadequate inventory accounting system, and they tried to do this patch job with the manual process, except that she, as CEO and CFO, also did not assure that they were hiring the proper people. So you went from poor control environment to poor control activities to, like I said, big mess. Um, that's really the lesson here, is that if you have a weak control environment, it will, I think, eventually, inevitably, lead to poor control activities. Something somewhere is going to be turned into a hash. In this case, it was accounting for inventory. And we wind up with a financial problem. But the principle here could easily apply to something very different, such as you have a poor control environment over third-party due diligence. And so you know that you've got automated due diligence systems that aren't working and are not adequate, but you're not hiring the right people. So the manual process that they might apply to correct your due diligence process that isn't working in the first place you know, they're not going to do it. And then you wind up with an FCPA problem. It all traces back to the control environment. Um, we should not let Tandy's audit committee off the hook here by any means, because uh, this situation lingered for years and years. Ultimately, it is the audit committee's responsibility and the board's responsibility to make sure we have the strong control environment. We have structured the roles the right way so that we're not depending on individuals. And when we see a problem at the process level, we fix the process. We don't add on a manual process that maybe will work if we got good people. Maybe it won't if we don't. Who knows? You can't have any of that. Uh, so there's a lot of lessons here about how to design internal controls. This happens to be about accounting. It could be just as easily about FCPA or cybersecurity or any other number of things. But it's a really good case when you dig into it about how control environments, control activities, and the rest have to work together to get a good outcome. And so, Tom, that's what's been on my mind. Karen Woody, we happen to have an SEC expert uh, on today's episode. Anything about this that strikes you one way or the other? 
Well, yeah, obviously the anything related to internal controls and certainly internal controls absence or any obviously any uh, anti-bribery uh, issue, and it's just the SEC focusing solely on an accounting issue without any foreign exposure, because as we know, the provision under which this was uh, you know charged is based in the FCPA. I mean, sort of that's where it's housed. And so I've written about how, you know, the internal controls provision now is entirely divorced from anything related to foreign bribery. And the SEC certainly seems to be taking that ball and running with it. And of course, they get to do that by virtue of um, having jurisdiction over the accounting provisions. But uh, I always think this is interesting when the idea is that internal control should be sort of the smoke detector um, but there might not be actual fire if the fire would have been uh, an anti-bribery violation. So I always am interested in these types of cases where we have a completely domestic issue related to accounting, of course, but um, housed with a charge that is based in, under the FCPA. So that's always one of my little niche uh, areas to, to be interested in. I, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely correct uh, that, yes, the internal controls provisions now, they were established by the FCPA, but yeah, to Karen's point, they picked up the ball and they've run with it. I mean, I've written many a story that is really about accounting fraud with a domestic concern, even though the the root legal authority for it comes from the FCPA. Um, to a certain extent, I, I mean, as a news person, I'm all for it because it gives me more to write about. Uh, but <laughs> the like they do provide good instructive lessons about how you would structure a good solid business process and good corporate governance and oversight of these things. You know, it's, what's fascinating to me is the the audit committee allowed this apparently to linger for far too long. Uh, the audit firm for Tandy, uh, they were merrily rolling along issuing one favorable audit report after another, despite this glaring inconsistency in the inventory accounting system in particular. Never mind the issue about we're going to patch that with a manual process and do the people patching it, are they qualified or not, which seems like they weren't. Um, you know, you can just see so many different like sort of good lessons, learns and best practices can be derived from these cases about how a board should approach the control environment, how you should design it well so that you don't wind up with a CEO or a CFO who is uh, responsible for too much. And then if they don't execute their duties diligently, which I mean, certainly from the allegations in the SEC order, Green does not look like she did this very well. Uh, you're going to wind up with a big problem. And you can see how it all connects from the nice theory down to a very specific accounting fraud and or accounting failure and restatement that, you know, it did sting and burn Tandy investors. That's for sure. So Matt has blogged about this. And we're going to link to that in the show notes. And I think uh, you in Matt's uh, presentation, you get just a sense of how geeky he and I can get when we uh, do our podcast into the weeds. But now we're to our special guest panelist, Karen Woody. And Karen, uh, what has been on your mind that uh, you could share with us? Sure. Thanks for having me, Tom. This has been already very enjoyable just to listen to all you all discuss your topics of the week. My topic uh, that's been on my mind this week is SPACs again, um, which I think has been on a number of people's minds since, you know, I guess about the last 18 months or so. They've certainly been the hot topic in um, the business world and now obviously in the regulatory world as well. Um, the one that caught my eye, the story that caught my eye this week was about Bill Ackman and his um, 
a, you know, his head fake really on doing uh, a SPAC acquisition that, that he had announced in June, but he reversed course. Um, uh, many of your listeners may know Bill Ackman um, is a sort of a, a very well-known name in investing world. Uh, he's sort of seen as uh, the mover in terms of, um, you know, certainly hostile takeovers and other sort of acquisitions um, through his prominent investment firm, which is Pershing Square Holdings. Um, and so he has a SPAC already set up that's traded on the stock exchange, and that's called Pershing Square Tontine Holdings. Uh, and he's been sort of looking for a suitor or a match to um, acquire that to use um, as the merger sort of target that he could uh, fold into his traded SPAC. Um, and he landed on Universal Group, actually. Um, and that's what he announced that they would be taking over. There, there would be a merger with a Universal what was interesting, and I think which explains some of his de decision this week, is that he actually wasn't doing a classic SPAC merger with Universal. Uh, he actually had a more complicated attempt um, or plan in, in mind, in that his SPAC was really only going to be sort of the majority shareholder of um, Universal, or actually Vivendi, which is the parent of that um, you know, the, the universal conglomerate there. Uh, and so it was already a SPAC light or SPAC ish. Um, so it wasn't going to be a straight merger. Um, and there were some people who thought that was, uh, a result of maybe a very crowded SPAC market or sort of other reasons that he was, uh, a little gunshine doing the full merger and said, was just going to hold 10% stake in it. Um, so, Regardless of the reason, um, he ended up walking away from this. Some people, there were different views on why he was structuring it this way. Some people thought it was genius because it ended up um, not being necessarily uh, uh, looking like exactly like a SPAC. And they thought this was smart. He would have to, he would maybe avoid some of the SPAC regulations that the regulators might apply. And then others said, well, uh, that's actually why he balked is because the SEC very quickly said, uh, this isn't actually a SPAC. If, uh, so the transaction you've announced doesn't really even look like a SPAC. So we were going to, it might not actually meet some of our uh, rules and regulations. So it's maybe a chicken and an egg. The regulators sort of, uh, you know, nodded that they were not going to look favorably upon this and investors got scared. Um, who knows what the um, true reason was. But Ackman um, decided to walk away. Uh, and I think it's it's an interesting um, situation. I, maybe he listened to Chumbawamba and thought, you know, try again. Going to take the take the loss on this. He's going to get knocked down, and he's going to where his sort of non-spec company, his holdings company, still has a large stake in Universal, but he's just he's not going to structure any deal um, through his spec. So he's still looking for another company to to merge with his spec to take public in that sort of. Back end around of uh, traditional IPO. I think it's an interesting story this week because, like I said, Bill Ackman always makes the, makes news, um, and whatever he's doing, sometimes you know, maybe a bellwether. Who knows? I think it certainly suggests that the SPAC market is very crowded um, and is it has been the hot sort of vehicle for over a year now. But with that comes a much closer look from the regulators. Regulators were. A little slow, I think, on stepping in, and we still don't have any completely clear-cut new rules about SPAC. But 
Chairman Gensler has made clear that they're looking closely at SPACs and also just this week announced um, an enforcement action against uh, a SPAC that actually filed charges about a lack of due diligence um, between the uh, from one party or the other in the merger. So we've seen um, sort of the regulatory uh, monster waking up, looking at these much more closely. And I think that had to play a role in Ackman's decision this week. So th- that was my thought. Um, there's obviously much more we could say about SPACs writ large and then Ackman as well. But that's the story that sort of uh, caught my eye this week. Matt, do you have a comment for Karen? I, I do. I'm fascinated by SPACs. Uh, my my take is, number one, I think you know whatever it, it was that Ackman was trying to do, and I, I've heard it called like a SPAC derivative or somebody called it a SPARC, but I don't know what the R stands for there. Um, I basically, I think the SEC said, nice try, knock it off, and he walked away. But I think he only did that because he's Bill Ackman. He has a zillion dollars, and it's no big deal. If he can't buy that through a SPAC, he could buy whatever he wants when he has a zillion dollars. But my question would be, if all of this, whatever this arrangement proposal was, if this had all happened at a much smaller scale with someone who wasn't Bill Ackman, and it wasn't going to be universal music, and it wasn't going to be involving billions of dollars, but a small amount of money, could this have squeaked under the SEC's radar uh, and I mean, we'll never know, but my concern is that we've got a lot of SPAC deals out there, too many for the SEC to keep track of all of them. And will we see SPACs that get shady deals that get intercepted before the SPAC merger, which is what happened with that uh, Stable Road and Momentous Space Company SPAC deal where the SEC slapped a sanction on them before they got the merger? Or are we going to see mm-hmm. more enforcement after the merger, like Lordstown Motors and whatever it is they're trying to say is a financial system over there, even though they're under investigation now by the Justice Department and the SEC, but they had already gone public. Um, but if we've got a lot of SPACs who are under pressure to do a deal or they give the money back, they're going to try and do a deal and they're going to do any deal possible. Now, when you're Bill Ackman, like I said, and you're a giant, people tend to look at the giants, but if you're a tiny one, could you stumble past the SEC and then cause some sort of grief for investors by 2022 or 23? And then we're going to have a big cleanup on aisle nine to try and figure out, you know, clean up all of this, the mess that's happening right now. I don't know what's going to go on, but like, I think what's happening with SPACs is just fascinating. Yeah, I, I my answer to you on all of those questions, I think, is yes. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of things that fly under the SEC's radar. I think there will be a lot of things that need to be cleaned up, which is why the regulators have perked their ears up and everyone has perked their ears up. I mean, if anything, this SPACs did seem to be the get rich quick scheme of, of the last, you know, couple of years. Everyone's, um, you know, wants to get in. There's a lot of sort of crazy plans and crazy players even in that, in that market. Um, and so I, I, I think there's going to be a lot of things that are, have create headaches and this isn't new. You know, we saw that also even in the 80s with the blank check companies. This isn't a new sort of concept, but I do think it is a breeding ground for, you know, if not outright fraud, certainly some shady dealings, to put to put it mildly, and that the SEC won't be able to keep up. And so I, you're right. I think they've noticed the big giants. They've noticed the things that have gone south sort of immediately, like Lordstown, after the fact. And the fact that they caught the stable road and momentous before merger, I think is, um, I guess, kudos to the SEC. But um, 
I, I think we'll see a lot more of that as, as they start really digging into this. But I, I agree. I think it's a very interesting, you know, it certainly changed my securities regulations class very quickly last year in terms of other ways people go public. Uh, I had to add an entire day for that. <laughs> so, Karen, I wanted to, to pose the question uh, along the lines of why, why shouldn't we applaud Ackerman for doing this? Why, uh, why wasn't this really the right thing? Whatever his motives might have been, he goes to the regulators, tries to convince them that this deal passes muster. They don't buy his argument. And so it, he backs out. Now, yes, you're right. It was an incredibly complicated deal, very complex. Um, and, and the simple fact that he doesn't get kind of regulatory blessing, isn't that enough for the shareholders to say, no, we don't want to do this? You know, it's a really valid point, and I think makes clear that my uh, chumbawamba analogy is misplaced <laughs> because, if anything, he actually avoided getting knocked down, stepped out of the game before he got knocked out. So um, you're right. I think maybe that is to be applauded. He, he, he basically asked for maybe sort of advisory opinion type thing, and they said no. I mean, he had actually acknowledged that investors in the SPAC had in trades and had, had dropped 18% of its value already. So he already was you know, fighting against both people who are investing in it, but then also the regulators. And again, that's what I meant by chicken and the egg query, which one went first, you know, uh, you know, maybe the investors realized the SEC wasn't going to figure this out or wasn't going to allow it. Or they also just thought this is, this is a crazy deal. That's not going to, that's not going to work. Who knows? But I, I agree. We have a situation here where, um, you know, maybe this is the best place um, for regulators to sort of give a, hey, not, that doesn't look great. Maybe take another look. And without someone being bullheaded and going forward anyway, he did, he did you know, decide to take a pass. So I, I, I agree. I take your point that this might have been the best outcome here. Well, we are now on to our fan favorite shout outs and rants. And we're going to keep the same order. We seem to have done pretty well with that order today. So Jonathan Armstrong, do you have a shout out and or rant for us today? I have a shout out. Thanks, Tom. It's to the author, Eric Carl. Now he uh, unfortunately passed away since the last time I was on the podcast. He was, of course, born in Syracuse, New York in 1929. And I didn't know this, but Carl had quite an interesting life. The family moved from Syracuse uh, back to, well, to Germany, where the family was from in 1935 just in time for Carl's father to be conscripted and sent as part of the Nazi forces to the Russian front. He didn't get back till 1947, and he had PSD, and he was emaciated. Meantime, Carl, aged 15, had been conscripted again into the German forces to dig the Siegfried line. On the first day on the line, three people around him uh, died. And the family wanted to escape Germany after the war and came to the US. Carl arrived in 1952 uh, with just $40 in his pocket. And uh, he came to the US to escape war and all the horrors of war he'd seen and was then conscripted into the US Army for the Korean War. So, needless to say, he had a uh, you know, a chumba-wumba type life. He was continually knocked down. 
But why do we know him as an author? You might not remember him as an author, but I guarantee that almost everyone on the podcast will have read one of his books, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, since he published it in 1969. It sold on average a copy per minute uh, globally since 1969. And I didn't know this, but he, uh, he was concerned about young children and saw the fear in a lot of them as they transitioned from home life to school. And he thought that he had life experiences through seeing the horror of war that could help them through it. And that's apparently why he wrote The Very Hungry Caterpillar. It showed the metamorphosis, the transition from caterpillar and the fear of stopping becoming a caterpillar, but the joy of then becoming a butterfly. So I thought, shout out to Eric Carl. Again, passes the Chumbawamba test. He got knocked down, he got up, and he tried to help others along the way. So rest in peace, Eric Carl. Jay Rosen, do you have a shout out and or rant? I have a tongue-in-cheek shout out. Will eight be enough to jump on Jonathan's nostalgia trip? I referenced the late 1970s family comedy starring Dick Van Patten. It was about a widower who was raising eight kids. To switch to the present now, it seems that Tampa Bay Bucks quarterback Tom Brady, owner of seven Lombardi trophies, six with the Pats and one with the Bucks, still needs motivation to compete. This week, Brady turned his ire on those other 31 teams who did not bid for his services when he was a free agent in 2020. Sisyphus had his rock. Tom Brady fabricates imaginary chips to carry on his shoulder. Here's looking forward to February 2021, when Brady will let us know whether eight will be enough. Tom? I am going to shout out today, and I'm going to shout out to UK lawyer Neil Jarrod. And Neil Jarrod is currently uh, embroiled in an imbroglio trial in the United Kingdom where his former client, one Eurasian Natural Resources Corp, ENRC, has sued him and the Serious Fraud Office, alleging collusion by Mr. Gerard and the Serious Fraud Office that he um, sent attorney-client privileged information to the SFO without the knowledge of his client. But that's not the reason I'm giving him a shout out. It's because in the age of Donald Trump and misinformation, Mr. Gerard has given us a new term that we can use. When confronted with text messages that he had sent to the serious fraud office and denied in court, first of all, he denied in court he had uh, sent text messages to the SFO. Then counsel for ENRC presented those text messages to him. His answer was, quote, I suffered from several bouts of global amnesia, end quote. Now, this is not alternative facts. Um, This is not not Kelly Conway talking about uh, massacres uh, that happened or didn't happen. This is a new phrase, a new term, and one that we should all fully embrace because it's not just Texas amnesia. It's not just U.S. amnesia. It's global amnesia. So the next time that you are experiencing perhaps a bout of senior a moment or where you just can't think of the answer, or you're presented with text messages 
where which you have denied sending under oath, well, now you have your answer. Global amnesia. Thank you, Neil Cherot. Karen. I have a wholly unrelated to the SEC shout out. And that is mostly just because today of all days, I'm most excited for the release of the second season of Ted Lasso. Uh, For those who haven't seen the first season, I cannot do anything but recommend this show. It is about a guy who is an American, sort of a football coach, that gets recruited to the UK um, to coach English football. Uh, and all of the hijinks and ridiculousness and um, sort of jokes about the English <laughs> uh, are all part of it, but it's actually an unbelievably uh, feel-good, sort of uplifting show in a way that you would not expect, and, and in a way I don't think you find as much on television these days. So I am very much looking forward to that as both a soccer and somewhat football fan, not a Tom Brady fan, but uh, I am, I'm looking forward to uh, that new show. That's my shout-out today. That's what I'm looking forward to. Matt Kelly, uh, hitting clean up today in shout-outs and rants. Do we have Conspiracy Matt, or do we have a shout-out? Uh, we have a shout-out, really, I think, today. Um, I want to give a shout-out to several businesses first. Uh, two restaurants. One is a restaurant and bar in Atlanta called Argosy. And another one is up here in Boston called Jacques. And there are several other restaurants around the country, I'm sure. And they get a shout out because they have started requiring proof of vaccination if you intend to go and enjoy their services. Uh, And I am shouting out to them for doing the most obvious thing that companies should be doing. And I we have all seen, I am sure. These headlines about the resurgent Delta virus now that is causing trouble all over this country. Uh, And it is high time for many more businesses and the government to get serious about saying, if you are an adult who willfully chooses not to get vaccinated, you have to stay home and you don't get full participation in this society. Now, if you're not getting vaccinated because you have a medical reason or a religious reason or because you were a child under the age of 12, I will put them aside. It's not their fault, and they should still be able to participate in society. But for adults who are willfully turning a blind eye to public health and willfully taking a risk with themselves and other innocent people, no, you should not be allowed to fly in a plane. You should not be allowed to go to the movies. You should not be allowed to go to a conference. You should not be allowed to go to restaurants. You should be allowed to sit home and be sick by yourself. Um, This is how we screw it up. We have done a fantastic job beating back the COVID virus. We have wonderful vaccines that are perfectly safe for pretty much everybody. And I don't understand why they're not mandatory for anybody who is able-bodied and healthy enough to take them, who should be. I hope the FDA will finally give final approval to all the vaccines where they already have emergency use. And that could give businesses and school districts a much stronger hand to say, no vaccine, get lost. Because that is what we need to say in this country and around the world if we are going to knock this vaccine, this virus down once and for all. So kudos to all the businesses who are starting to take this as seriously as it needs to be taken. Ladies, uh, lady and gentlemen, uh, this has been a great show. Uh, Karen, on behalf of the gentleman, I'm going to say thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really enjoyed having you. And I hope that uh, perhaps you can join us again for another episode of Everything Compliance. Yeah. Thanks, thank you, Tom. Tom. Thanks, Karen. I love that. Thank you all so much. This has been a great time. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future. Uh, Please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.